My name is Ron Padgett, and I'm here to tell you just one thing, that you're listening to a radio station with your ears, and it's called WC. Now, if we stop right there, it would be bad, because that sounds like a bathroom. But we're listening to WCBN, and it has an FM, and then it has an Ann Arbor. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. There you go. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, I'm so pleased today to have in the studio with me Bruce Duffy. Um, and Bruce, welcome. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, it's great. It's great to have you. And I should say we're taping this on Thursday morning, March 22nd, 2012. <laughs> to get it all time capsule. Sounds like Guantanamo when you're telling me that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh, hopefully, we'll have some fun. Ho- yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce, you've picked out some great music for us, and um, Thank you. we're yeah. going to try to shake things up a little bit. Even though it's morning time, the listeners will be having the experience in the afternoon, so they'll be well on their way. Good. <laughs> um, and Bruce, you'll also you came to Ann Arbor. You're reading um, from your novel um, "Disaster Was My God," a novel of the outlaw life of Arthur Rambeau. Um, and so this is, this is wonderful. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great book. Oh, thank you. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about it today. Um, you'll read some for us sure. from it. Um, and to kick things off, I'll just read uh, the short bio and then we'll go from there. And we'll, okay. since it's so short, we'll fill in some of the, 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 the gaps there. Bruce Duffy is the author of The World as I Found It, a fictional life of Ludwig Wittgenstein, and last comes The Egg. His first novel has just been released in the New York Review of Books classic series. He lives in Bethesda, Maryland. So now we have we have a lot to say. All true. <laughs> All true. <laughs> nothing nothing has changed. Nothing wrong. No, nothing false about that. Because so. the book the book is out with Doubleday and was out just at, at the end of last year. Yep, Europe. and it's coming out in paperback this uh, summer, which I'm looking forward to. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Okay, well, well, that's good to know. So, um, that, will you also go? Will you go out again, Bruce, with it for a little bit, or as much as you do to... these days? I mean, they don't like to do a lot of uh, promotion these days. They like to do interviews and uh readings sparingly but yeah there's just not a whole lot of money i think for anybody to uh to do a lot of advertising and so on well we're so lucky that you've you've come here to ann arbor then it's it's good to have you here and um and and so bethesda maryland that's where you you were born in in washington dc were you in uh, born outside of washington dc in a little town called garrett park maryland oh okay and uh you know it was in those days, uh, Washington D.C. was really in the South, <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. uh, was a, in many ways, a very segregated city, uh, and it was 
So it was a very different um, different environment than anybody would rec- recognize today. And uh, I, I think that certainly influenced my second book, uh, Last Comes the Egg, which is more autobiographical and also um, looks it's, to some extent at the black world. So which was a very closed and forbidden world in those days. And you and so you've lived your your entire life near in this this area of yep. Maryland cuz if living in Bethesda that's not I was I was born in Annapolis and grew up in Crofton. So okay. I I've been I know I've been through Bethesda. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's where I live now. I didn't I didn't grow up in Bethesda. Yeah, but Bethesda Park. very is a much nicer place. But anyway, but that's uh, that's where I live now. Ah, uh, and and so well and and Bruce, it's interesting also because your your first your first book, um, "The World as I See It," that was that was also uh, that was a book where you imagined the life of Ludwig Wittgenstein in Vienna, yeah, and, and uh, at uh, Cambridge in uh, England. And uh, it, you know, I wrote that whole book, and I uh, looked at a great many pictures, and looked at read a great many journals and other. Uh, artifacts of the time, but were in fact, in? I, but I had never been to Europe oh, at that's that what point. I, that's what I was just going to ask. Were you? Had you been studying in Vienna, or what was the? No, I, I had never. I had never been to Europe, um, and uh, at first, that was just a matter of uh, time and money. And I, but I hadn't had that opportunity. But uh, by the end of the book, I, I could have gone to Europe, and by that point, I thought I wanted this to be really a very fictional reality. Uh, so uh, I deliberately did not go to Europe. Um, you know, after the book just came out, I met this uh, pretty famous writer named uh, Walter Abish, and he said, "Well, how much time did you uh, spend in Europe?" And I said, "Well, I, I didn't spend much time there, but I've been to uh, Bush Gardens. That's it. <laughs> in the old country there, you know." <laughs> right, right. Like Ep- I went to Epcot Center. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and he had he already read the book by that time, so he was just assuming that you had spent time because the book was so yeah. well the portrayed and the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know whether he had actually read it, but um, I, uh, you know, I did talk to people who had been there at that time. I mean, my wife's uh, grandmother was a Jew from Poland, and uh, part of the book when Wittgenstein's fighting World War One takes part in Galicia, which is in Poland, and. I got her started, this very sweet old lady talking about what her life was like that in World War I uh, and just the, the vicious discrimination they, they suffered there. Uh, she said she had uh, some Polish soldiers had uh, you know, cut off his, her grandfather's beer with a bayonet <laughs> and uh, she couldn't have been. Uh, so it just, with something like that, when you talk to someone like that, it's as if they've given you electric shock. <laughs> I mean, there's just something that they've transmitted to you, and that is that emotion, that raw emotion, is what I think I really feed on. Um, similarly, my my grandfather fought in World War One, and my my grandmother used to tell me he was I'd never met him. He had been dead when I was born, but that um, he used to cry in the night. And I had his helmet, and I had his discharge papers. That's about all I had, but. Just the idea of your grandfather crying at night. What was, in his sleep. Yeah, in, like, in so his sleep. His, or, yeah, his... just, I mean, just, you know, how hellish that reality was being these these trenches where these guys were just corralled and uh, under massive uh, shell fire and everything else you can possibly imagine. So I, th- I think in that sense, I, 
I have spent a very deep sense of trying to really imagine that time and imagine that that kind of pain, that kind of passion, how that world uh, really came about. And that that part is no joke to me. I mean, I, I and I, I in those days, my wife at the time, we used to have. Um, uh, parties on Friday night, I'd get fifty dollars in dimes, and we go down to the uh, Library of Congress. You know, you couldn't go on the internet then, <laughs> and I we would go on a mad xeroxing binge for about four or five hours with all these different books. And so I, I did an I did a huge amount of research on this. Although I made up a lot, uh, I wanted to also just um, have that. Uh, very confusing reality where, how do you know that? <laughs> where yes. do you get that? Yeah. Because uh, you couldn't dismiss that. I wanted people to feel that anxiety uh, with the fiction about, I don't know what's true and what's not, but it's so compelling that I can't stop reading it. And that's what you've also created. The same, like, similar historical moment, right? right this time frame. Right. Um, that you were and disaster was my god a novel of the outlaw life of arthur rambo um so this is also returning to this time in the same uh as you were saying this this um this strange feeling of is this the truth which part is how could he know this right and from this this poet's life what where is this are you it's as yes well in this well in this case i worked um i worked very differently um you know, after the worlds, I found that the literally the first thing I did once the book was done, I um, I wanted to do something else, and I um, I did a story where I uh, hopped trains with hobos, yes. and, I, and I rode across the West with these two hobos, uh, Bear Grease and Seattle Slim. Now I had <laughs> I had hitchhiked, I had worked construction with some really tough characters, and I uh, washed some dishes. <laughs> all, I mean, all, all, yeah, really, I had done all that stuff. You know, they're kind of these are writers, know. writers' jobs. Yeah, well, I think it's. I mean, I I think you can't have enough experience, really. And I and I, I'm always fascinated by people of all different classes, and uh, and I, I find a great gift, you know, to be around them. But but in any case, I, I did that. Um, I had a, a, a friend, a writer named Bob Shakochis, uh, who invited me to come down with him to Haiti just after the U.S. invasion. He was writing a story called The Immaculate Invasion. and uh, What I a was, title. Uh, yeah, and I, so three hours after being in there, we're in a Zodiac with a Special Forces uh, scuba team and caught in this uh, huge storm going over this island called Laganov. And, you know, I, I traveled a bit, uh, but Haiti just blew my mind. I mean, it's just you can't – you can watch the Discovery Channel. You go blind. You'll, you'll never understand what it's like, the, the reality, human reality, face-to-face with, with that in Haiti. And then I, I went to Bosnia just literally the day the war ended, uh, was with all three different sides, uh, went to um, Taliban Afghanistan, um, the strangest experience by far that I've ever had. And then I did go to Ethiopia where Rambo was. <laughs> yes, because so, yeah. it was Abyssinia. Abyssinia. When, when in his time. right. And um, a little story, I, I, uh, I tell people that um, I spend a long time being dumb writing a novel. It takes me, you know, I'm usually about maybe four or five years being dumb before I have this very brief period, if it works at all, where I'm smart. Is that being open, though? Well, I... I, I dumb being yeah, open? I th- well, I think, yeah, I just think that, I mean, in this case, the book, you know, the, the story of Rambo's life, it, he is so disturbing. He is He is... Uh, so um, 
so alienated. I mean, you know, with somebody's writing masterpiece at the age of 16, stops writing at the time most people are beginning writing at the age of 20 or 21 and stops forever. I mean, he just has no interest in it. He has no interest of art of any kind. He has no interest in books or poetry. And then he winds up selling guns in Ethiopia. He's like, uh, a, yeah, to, the, a gun to a bad. To, to, to a you know, <laughs> terrible king. Uh, so... So I, I went to Ethiopia, but it, when I arrived in in England to, um, in, I had a layover in England. I got a call from these two friends who had just read the half of the book that I had written, and they called, and it was devastating. But it was true. They said this book is just not working for us. <laughs> I, I we're just not. They're both psychiatrists. They said we're not seeing this character. We love the writing, but it, it's just not happening. So you can imagine it was pretty devastating, and I end up in Ethiopia. Uh, I go to the town where Rambo was, a town called Harar, out in the, out in the middle of the desert. It's a, it's a town that's probably about 700 years old. And, uh, and he had a house by the well. He had a house uh, by the well. He had a, a trading business. And is that true? That's absolutely true. So that's not something that you no, place no, so no, that no. the women I mean, would you know, be... I mean, I'm pretty true to the basics of the basic reality, I think, of these of, of these characters. Um, so, no, all that, all that is definitely true. He was a traitor. He sold um, sold weapons to a you know, murderous, vengeful king who at that point was trying to consolidate his, uh, his power and would just go in and wipe out a village. And, uh, you know, I can't lie. I mean, it, uh, I don't see any evidence that it bothered Rambo for one second. How, how is that possible? I mean, I just, it's just, it boggles the mind. And so finally I went outside of Harar and I had one guy with me and he took me way, way out in the desert, um, out into the tribal zone. And there you're out in a total state of nature. It's like road warrior. I mean, they're erect, they're erect, uh, this is a smuggler route. So they're erect, uh, vehicles all along the side of the road, especially tractor trailers, oh. um, Every native over the age of 14 is carrying like an AK or some other auto- automatic weapon and a big, you know, big knife. And what are you carrying? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> a water bottle. <laughs> you you got to just carry your presumption, you know, to go out there. I mean, because part of it to do something like that, you almost have to feel like you're on a mission from God, that, you know. And I think it just, uh, that you're willing to talk to people or, you know, I don't know, you're just not, you can't be freaked out, whatever else. I mean, you may be freaked out, but you can't act that way. And... The next to last day when I was there, here I am surrounded by all these armed men. There is there is absolutely no police, <laughs> no fire department, no ambulance, no authority of any kind. There was no reason for them. They could have killed me. It wouldn't. It, nothing would have happened. And I I was standing there in this 120 degree sun, feeling kind of dazed. And I thought, why don't they kill me in this kind of little half dream, you know? And then I suddenly thought about Rambo, and I was thinking. In those days, it was much, much worse. If they saw you as a frangi, a, a foreigner, they were coming to kill you. <laughs> if they killed you, you'd be, they'd be a, a big man about whom you know, songs would be sung yes. around the fire. and it I would mean, happen at night from your book. Like, right. That would and, be the or time. They, or, you know, they, they could. They, I mean, they, and they constantly kill each other today. I mean, you can't have a woman in Ethiopia until you've, you've killed somebody from the other and tribe. And that's current, because that's, that's in current. the book oh, yeah. as well. It just happens. I mean, it, they, they, they don't even police it there. It's just, that's just the reality. 
Bruce, um, let me yeah. let me this sure. this what a stark what a reality. Uh, let's take a short break and then we'll come back, okay? And we'll okay. pick up right where we left off because you're in mid story here, okay? okay? All right, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Bruce Duffy is here. His book Disaster Was My God, a novel of the outlaw life of Arthur Rambo. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Bruce Stuffy is here. His novel, Disaster, was my God. Thanks to Tex for engineering for us today, spinning a little sex pistols here. Um, so, Bruce, wait, let's talk a moment about the song. And before we, we yeah. go back to the, the story, um, w- w- <laughs> we both were, it, it gets you going in the morning, even oh, though that yeah, wasn't. That's one of the great crazy groups of all time. I mean, they, they, they really meant it. You know, they weren't screwing around, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I almost when I think of them, I the think sex pistols, I, yeah. I think of like safety pins everywhere and like the biggest sort of um, and most genuine snarl somehow you can Im- imagine. Yeah, I mean they they completely self they completely self destructed. But I I, I played um, the part from the Sex Pistols because uh, if anybody looks like Rambo, it's uh, to, to me it's Johnny Rotten or or Leonardo DiCaprio when he was younger. Uh, they both look absolutely like Rambo, who is very handsome, by the way. And, um, but you have to understand that when Rambo was a teenager, and we, as my wife, as a therapist, would say when he was acting out, there was no concept of being a teenager then. When you were like 15 or 16, you went into a, an apprenticeship, you got married by probably 17, and there was your life. You were the just adult, an adult. Yeah. You were probably going to die by the age of 50. So life was very short, very tough, and there was no time or the kind of affluence you need for a teenage culture. So Rambo was really the world's first punk. I mean, nobody had ever acted like this. Nobody had gone out there and deliberately tried to undergo a systematic derangement of the senses, smoking hashish, having homosexual sex with an older man, uh, the the poet uh, Paul Verlaine, who was utterly captive to this 
kid who's like 11 years younger than he is. He was definitely the bottom man in that relationship. And Rambo just had this unbelievable raging kind of power that that just frightened people to death. Nobody, and he is, you know, I, I have a friend of mine, a woman who was my teacher, who was a, is a pretty famous poetry critic. Marjorie Perloff? Marjorie Perloff, yeah. She's, and, now, she's the one that first handed you... Rambo. Your, she's yes. the first, she's the first one that first handed me Rambo. And after and a particular copy too. That particular copy from uh, from Wallace Fowley, which in my opinion is is the best one, but um, or the best translation. But um, you know, after staring at this, not because I was so so brilliant, but after staring at this for for some years, I said, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Rambo is the only writer in the 19th century who writes and thinks like a 20th century person. And she thought about it and she said, you know what, you're right. I mean, you know, not Walt Whitman, not Emily Dickinson, you line them all up. Even, I mean, Oscar Wilde probably comes very close, but, um, but I think he's still a 19th century creature. And that's not to take anything away from them. They're all great, they were all great writers. But Rambo was literally 50 years ahead of his time. He was, he was, you know, writing surrealism before they were surrealists. He was, he was a punk before they were punks. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, Breton uh, even hats off from Breton, which yeah. is not an easy thing to accomplish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's where he is. He's had enormous uh, influence as a cultural figure, and is just a uh, a force of rebellion. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but, yeah. and, and to say like ahead of your time, that's almost. It's it's something that you can't really quite fathom, right? Like we can say it, but not to be able to understand it. Because I, I feel like right now in the moment, in some ways, we we are of this this time, Bruce. Sure. And so maybe this is the part that makes him a genius, but also is like the the core of the self destruction. Um, because how do you live out of time? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think he was. Uh, he was certainly recognized by his contemporaries as a genius. He was he was brought as a young boy, like at, at the age of uh, fifteen, to Paris the by, these, by the, yeah. the Parnassians. Uh, I mean, the Parnassians are just, it, it is so boring. It is so flowery. Yes. <laughs> it is so artificial. It's just, it's utterly unreadable. And didn't he rail against them? At oh, a, he, well, yes. eventually, at a he got point. back there. Yeah, yes. he, he bit the hand, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, you know, he just really brought a kind of reality. I mean, he was raised on a dairy farm. And the other thing that I think is quite wonderful about his poems is the his sense of sense of reality, his sense of the natural world, his sense of uh, he has a early poem he wrote where he's talking about blood and sap and embryos. I mean, nobody in on earth, and it's a beautiful poem, but nobody yes. on earth at that time would have written anything remotely like that. Especially to use the word embryo, embryo. was Ugh. to be almost sacrilegious. Like it would have been... Right. It's uh, just, it's like spitting on the, the holy host or something. I mean, it's just, uh, and... Uh, and he, in, in his small village, Bruce, he, he did some, like he would go into the village and write things about um, God on the wall. Right. Like, so, and that was when he was quite a bit younger. He tried to leave right. home and came back, but then, and his, his mother... He had this... Uh, you know, really dreadful mother who, to my surprise, became a, a, a you know, a great, for me, great character in the novel and really sort of rivals him for the lead, I guess, the lead character in the novel. And that was surprising? Uh, Madame Rambo. <laughs> I just, I just never thought that she would, um, 
that she would be that that powerful. And what happened was, and the book really finally took fire with me when I realized one day, wait a minute, when Rambo was dead for 10 years, she had him dug up, him and his, so the, the, so she had a beloved daughter who she just adored, who had died at the age of 14 of basically consumption or something like that. Rambo, the one she abhorred, um, she had, you know, buried on the farm. And in those 10 years, he become so famous that they were in the process of, you know, putting a, a, a statue in the village square of him, which is bizarre because they've got him like this sort of Huckleberry Finn-like cherub, you know. I mean, it couldn't be less true to <laughs> it his nature. It wasn't him graffitiing the wall of the, the church, the cathedral. Yeah, yeah him yeah. in filthy rags and, you know. And uh, unwashed hair. Yeah, and, 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 and an upside-down pipe, no. Yeah, right. But, um, but um, but anyway, she she had somebody dig these these both up, and uh, and I started to write this scene and just started to realize this 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 subterranean force he had this unbelievable anger and rage that she had at him, uh, you know, rage that suddenly they're both revealed and the the beloved daughter's casket is sort of completely crashed in his is mahogany his is completely mahogany completely intact. And that was that was the moment for me, and because I think what I had resisted was just I, I felt like, you know, who's going to accept this, or how do you write this in a way that people can even deal with? And suddenly, I just had that effort moment yeah. <laughs> that well, I'm just going to let it, I'm going to let them do whatever, whatever it's going to be. I'm not going to I'm not shying away from anything. And that that and then I didn't. And that's what you have to do. And and that was defined in this moment, and that's how that's how you open the novel, yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. So, and what is it about that particular moment, though, that the exhumation, like the, um, because in a way, that's what you're doing as well yeah. as the as his mother, in some way, and and then you're seeming to channel, uh, Ramo in a way. Mm-hmm. But I wonder what it is about well, that was, moment, whereas uh, you just were like. I was I was badly raised, you know, and uh, so I can certainly identify. See, I haven't read your your second yeah, book. My, so. my 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 mother um, died when I was eleven. I was an only child. Sorry. Died of basically medical malpractice. And when somebody dies badly, I think in a family, I think um, everybody blames everybody else. Um, certainly, my father and and I did. And then he married a. Uh, a very troubled woman, um, what I guess my wife, the therapist, would call a borderline, and um, you know, it just it just was uh, was not the way to grow up. But I guess it may, might be the way to grow up to be a writer. But um, but um, did that did that make you sort of rebel also at a younger age? Because if you lost your mom, and I'm sorry, at eleven, mm-hmm. like then, is that so that was that something that was transformative? Then? Well, once I went, I went to college, and um, you know, I arrived there as a as a freshman, and I would go to mixers, and I'd be wearing a tie. And uh, you know, by, by by the that summer, I was growing my hair, and you know, I was really just I, I made up for a lot of lost time really, really fast. Leather being, jackets, being, yeah, being a hippie, and you know. <laughs> 
being a you know a notoriously crazy hippie. And is that uh, when you started hitchhiking, or is that when you rode the train? Yeah, Bruce? yeah. So it's when I started hitchhiking then. You know, when I was like oh. twenty, I hitchhiked back and forth across the country. I was um, trying to go to Alaska, but I got ah. deported when I got to the uh, border. They, the Canadians would let me in because I had long hair and. Uh, they found something on me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Damn hippie. <laughs> so, um, but it was it was later when I when I did the uh, did the train riding right. at that, at that point. I, at, at that point, actually, I was yeah. At that point, I was a a father. I'm uh, probably semi ashamed to say, but <laughs> Lily and Kate. <laughs> yeah, with Lily and Kate. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but I think with I think with with Madame Rambeau, one thing that was interesting to me from being a father was I also came to be rather sympathetic with her. Uh, I had had some experience, I won't say with whom, as, uh, with, you know, one of my kids, uh, and it was a really a tough time. She's doing fabulously now. But, um, you know, aliens hijacked her body and her brain for about four years. And so I know what that's like. And I was trying to really imagine, okay, so what if you had this son? <laughs> You've never had yeah. a day of therapy. You're stuck on a farm. You have no man to take care of this. <laughs> yeah. And she was uh, also a, a, abused by her She was abused by, and, well, yeah. I mean, and so men, I, so, her, his husband Right. Left. I mean, so I suppose in this. Oh, but, okay. But, but, it, but, you know, but. <laughs> Is that the fiction part? Well, oh, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not okay. going to give you a whole cliff notes on it. But. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. You can ask whatever you want. But, um, I'm just not going to tell you, but, <laughs> but, but I think that I, and I think then when I was able to get into that just archetypal struggle between the two of them, between him being a genius, uh, you know, incredibly good boy an incredibly stifled boy. And it's just like, it's just like packing gunpowder. <laughs> But, and he she, was bound. He was bound to explode. I mean, in the way that I, I guess that I exploded when I left, because I, I left home and you know at nineteen and put myself through college and all that, and um, you know sort of never looked back. We're gonna take a short break, yeah. and then we're gonna we're gonna come back and talk more yeah. with Bruce Stuffy. His his novel Disaster Was My God, a novel of the outlaw life of Arthur Rambo. I'm T Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, pot of thieves, wild cord on my sleeve, thick heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. Me.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Bruce Duffy is here. His novel, Disaster Was My God. Um, and that was just Patti Smith. So that was Patti Smith, who was the biggest Rambo fan uh, in the uh, in the world, uh, there, without question. Uh, there's a Rambo museum, and they had a great many prints that she had donated there, and uh, she's done you know great things for him. And and do you know Bruce? Is it something that where he came to her when she was sort of that age, and she needed him like that, like she read those poems, or just a lifelong? thing i i I think with uh, if i remember correctly with her uh, book um, her wonderful book just kids that um i think she discovered them with uh when she was um uh sort of in her early 20s i think something like that but she you know she was very brooding very artistic um you know she was uh you know with uh, robert mapplethorpe which is unbelievable (laughs) And, and just all the people they knew and routinely would see, like Janis Joplin and all that. And she wasn't even particularly famous then. But um, but I guess she had a certain charisma about her. But uh, but I think with you know with her, I, I think that uh, you listen to the way she bends the music and her and her sounds, the the way she uh, um, you know can just go off on a uh, on a, a certain theme. And uh, while it's not exactly like Rambo, I think it's it's in the spirit of Rambo. Mm. Uh, yeah. So and and you also are in the spirit of Rambo. It it seems. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I guess. <laughs> and, and I I love the article that you wrote. What do you do when um like your like a hero of yours is an sob? Is an sob. <laughs> um, that 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 essay of yours. I, yeah, really. And it was a it was a real problem for me because I I think uh, there was. Perhaps with any writer, but certainly with me, there's this primitive part of me that uh, that that wants you to like my characters, uh, which is silly if you think about it. I mean, you know, you're not. I think I think Rambo becomes um, sympathetic in here. I think there are points where he is he is admirable, uh, but I don't know if anybody would say they like him. But you know, I think what what Pete readers really respond to is that they feel like this character has a, a really complete reality <laughs> that they can they can understand why they're there. If you can take them inside this person, if you can make them understand why they're like that and what they've done, then I think they're most of them are, most most uh, readers are willing to go along for the ride. So do and that is that is not easy work. And and I feel like I wonder if you lose yourself for some of that time in this work because we you told us about being in um ethiopia Ethiopia, yeah um so maybe take us back to that moment that you described well i I guess what i was saying was that i you know the we're out in the middle of this desert we're out in this this totally um, tribal land where there is no law no order no authority and uh it's probably 120 degrees and i'm outside our our car with just one translator uh, guide, and I'm surrounded by these armed men who are carrying like AKs and knives and all that, and they're very placid in a lot of ways. But you know, like I say, with these kind of places, everything's fine until it's not. It's it's <laughs> you know? like an exterior calm that is just right. You just I mean, right. I mean, it's just you know, it's just yeah. And uh, and I thought, why don't they kill me? <laughs> you know, I just had this almost momentary dream, and. At that same moment, I thought, 
oh my God, because here I am, I've been here for three weeks, and I, I am ready to go home. Please let me go home. Well, Rambo was there for 10 years when it was far more dangerous, where if you're a Frangi, a foreigner, they, they, are, they would be happy to kill you. They would, you'd be a, they'd be a hero in their village. And that, to me, spoke volumes about his, his alienation, <laughs> I think his, 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 his fear, in a way, of going back to France. Because other people in that situation, they would have taken holidays home. Nobody would have stayed there for 10 years. You have to be insane to stay there for 10 years. So it, it, that to me was the, I guess, being touched by fire moment <laughs> where I suddenly just realized something about this character. I, I think I also, at that moment, um, realized that this was really an outlaw. <laughs> and I really had to think of him as an outlaw. Uh, you know, with a story that was, uh, you know, maybe had a certain kind of uh, like a Western <laughs> flair to it where he's uh, he's you know, he's got he's he's got all this gold. He's got a uh, giant lump in his uh, knee that has cancer and he has to be carried by by stretcher across about 150 miles of desert uh, through one of the most hostile, dangerous places on Earth. He's got 12 hired killers, a caravan. And he's got a, a family of four with two children. Just at the last moment. At the last, at the last moment, and I mean, there. I think you. There's the admirable part of him that, that to really keep this together. To I mean, under just excruciating circumstances, when he's under horrible pain, to pull this together and 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 make this happen. Uh, and you you have to admire that because it's not just anybody could do that. Um, you know, by no stretch of the imagination. So, um, you know, that, that, that to me was, uh, just gave me another real theme with that, I guess, to re- realize that, that part of it, you can the almost going, the going home part, you know, and what, and what do you, what are you going home to? You've got this, you've got this, you know, dreadful mother, you've got, um, you know, a, uh, a sister who's very much captive by the dreadful mother and, uh, all that you've hidden from <laughs> and run away from. Uh, for years, I mean, uh, suddenly going home. So I, that's what I wanted to really capture there. And, and people and, knowing that you're the poet and having these strange, because that's the family, they even, they kind of throw that at him as right. a provocation or as, uh, so this other identity that you haven't. Right. Well, they, you know, I, I guess at one level I was attracted by the idea of a poet with a gun. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, you, it's just not at all how you would picture picture a poet. You know, you don't picture poets selling firearms <laughs> or like arming vengeful kings. Uh, and ha- and so this woman sort of picks up on that. She doesn't really know. She knows he's a poet. She knows that he's had some notoriety, but she doesn't know his poems. She doesn't know his poems per se. But because the people um, that he worked with back in Har- Harar, they had. Read some of his poems. They had read some of his poems. And tried to, and he was close to he them. He just, I mean, that's what's, that was what is so amazing about him. I mean, here, by the end of his life, he was, he was discovered, and he was the second coming. I mean, what they, what they could not grasp um, 20 years before, all of a sudden people got <laughs> within, within that period that they couldn't maybe understand it, but they knew that it was something that was completely extraordinary was completely breaking with anything they had ever seen before. And um, 
Rambo wasn't even interested. I mean, when he left it, I, I think because I think what happened with him with his poetry, I, I think it, it died. It died with his childhood. I think it was a phenomenon of his childhood. So his poetry was, in a sense, a kind of buried child, and uh, just something. Once he left it, he didn't want to go back to it. Would never think about it. And uh, one very interesting thing is the letters that he wrote from Africa to his family. Um, they are so primitive. It's like he was unlearning how to write. You can't, I mean, it's, some of these, it's like you would, I think a 10-year-old could have written some of these letters or, and done a far better job. And others are just so, they're just, uh, they're completely antiquarian. They're completely uh, Today devoid I had of lunch. emotion. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, just statement, statement, statement. And uh, so that was another sad thing to think that here you have this person who had about as much stylistic brilliance as anybody I've ever met in my life or ever read in my life. Oh, uh, but just, you feel like you've met but him. I feel like I've met him. He's, yeah, <laughs> living inside me. <laughs> yes. So, so what I, is that to have someone living inside you? And what does that do for the time you worked on this book, Bruce? Like, is there a, a loss of self? or Because who are you having conversations with in your mind? Or who, yeah. Um. Well, I, I can say that my wife was uh, was very upset with me for the two years that I actually wrote this book. And I, I think that, um, in a sense, as a writer, uh, you sort of can get into character, so to speak. Uh, I wasn't, like, killing anybody, but... Awkward. <laughs> you know, but... Um, I, I just was working ridiculous hours. I would, you know, I have a, a full-time job, so I was getting up at 4 a.m. and, you know, writing before I went to work or before I started work, and then uh, writing in the evening, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, too much caffeine and energy shots and so on. And uh, it it did bring out a certain ruthlessness <laughs> to, to get that done and just to get into... Uh, that frame of mind, you know, just to, I mean, I think to sort of steal you for it, steal yourself for it because it just was, it was really upsetting writing a lot of this. <laughs> it was really upsetting. Uh, the stuff in the uh, stuff going across Africa was uh, really disturbing. And it was, it, to me, it was very, very real. <laughs> uh, you know, just, uh, I mean, the last Again, like, you know, that I don't know, like, I think like our last day in the desert or whatever, and we've got behind the car, I can't remember what I was doing, and uh, some cars are going by, and all of a sudden I see all these people running, and a a truck had gone off the mountainside. (laughs) And in a place like that, it's just another day at the ranch. (laughs) I mean, everybody goes down there and go, oh, you know, and, and then they just all get back in their cars and drive on, and this person, you know, the person or persons had dropped, you know, fallen about 300 feet. There was no question they were, they were dead. But there, there, there comes to be that kind of ruthlessness in you, you know, that you just, um, you, you may feel bad about it, but you just got to move on. You can't get, you can't, um, you can't get affected by it. Um, you know, you might feel bad about it later, and I think you do, but um, at that time you can't. And that is part that is part of the human condition, but a part that we don't often um, reckon with 
and it seems like you had and that's, to. And I think that I think I think that that reality is is in is in this book. Just to realize, I mean, I want you to feel a real deep, deep fear of being in a place where anything can happen. <laughs> Where at nighttime uh, you were just absolutely you were bait. <laughs> People are coming in there to kill you uh, if they possibly can. Where you have to have an offense of these killers who are basically going out to try and kill them or intercept them before they they come in. And uh, just what that's like. You know, how do you how do you feel about that? How do you how do you understand that? Uh, and. Uh, that's what I wanted to take you back to. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll hear some of the book. Disaster Was My God, a novel of the outlaw life of Arthur Rambo by Bruce Duffy. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Bruce Duffy is here. His book, Disaster Was My God, a novel of the outlaw life of Arthur Rambo. Um, Bruce, this is such a, I'm so enjoying our conversation. I am too. Thank you. You're a great interviewer. (laughs) Thank you. But I realize we have not read, you have not read from the book yet. So let's do that before we go any further. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to read from a chapter called Bad Day. Um, so as the book opens, uh, we see Rambo on his last day in Ethiopia in this town called Harar. And he's about to leave Ethiopia because he has this, uh, this terrible ball in his knee, that, uh, like a cannonball that is cancer, and he has to be carried across the desert. He insists to, it's very varicose veins. Though, oh, he just—I right? mean, he wastes you know months and months and months, you know, trying to think it's anything but what it is. Uh, yeah, he was—he was wonderful, gift, very gifted at denial. So finally, he leaves, and we're seeing him now as he um, gets ready to on to literally leave. Uh, so, and his his um, his. His uh, manservant, Dejami, is, uh, is getting ready. 
And so in silence, Jami straps around Rambo's thinning waist a corset of gold, four kilos worth, enough to slow a bullet or endow a village. Gold, more dangerous here than dynamite. The sagging vest is like a pair of lungs with armholes. It is heavier than life, this corset of gold bars. But this weight that he feels it is not because of what this small fortune represents, or even the years that it might purchase. Nor is it because of the years of suffering, penury, and odiousness that it took to amass his gold hoard, such as it is. Now, what stops Rambeau cold is the terror of losing it all, of losing it at the last possible moment, of being pulled down like a wildebeest, and just when he is on the verge of hope. Hope. Hope is the wound, he realizes. Of all people, and in the worst possible time, he, Arthur Rambeau, realist, scientist, cynic, is actually suffering from hope, despite everything he hopes. Well, he bluffs himself, buckling on this vest of gold. No one will take it without a fight. For inside this muscular gold cuirass, he stuffs a thirty-two revolver. Then in his right boot, in case of capture, a double-shot Derringer, once in the head for a speedy exit. While alive, however, there are other remedies. For reaching under the bed, Jami hands him a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun, a bludgeon of Damascus steel loaded with double-aught buckshot, nine balls fat as hailstones, nine in one blast, enough to bury a charging lion. God, however, Allah or Jesus of the Ascension, that heavily swimmer doing that slow crawl in the clouds above, he's not impressed. These pea shooters don't change the fact about Rambo's left leg, black and blue and bloated. Take a whiff. There is no hiding it. Hunker down the scorched glass, Madame Hyena and her clam will sniff him out. Here you are meat, and to meat you will return. The door bursts open. <clears throat> Downstairs in their white fezes and uniforms, three Egyptian sentries, his part-time hirelings, jump up. I've got it, he barks, hanging on one crutch. Heavy, you heavy, says the Egyptian with a runny smile. Rot, pay attention. It's like a hanging. Rambo can hear, hear the crowd outside waiting to see his face in his hour of shame. And so, sick to his stomach with a practiced recklessness, he raises the gun, hits the door with the heel of his hand, and lurches out defiantly. And for one eternal second, silence. Three hundred pairs of eyes all riveted on him. Blue, black, and white robes with oiled hair as the warriors are waiting. Muscular twists of men bristling with spears and daggers and some with brass-tattooed muskets. Glaze eyes and passive lips. In every cheek, fat lumps of the narcotic chots. Bright, tiny, woozy-making leaves of an alarming green. Zip, zip, zip. Go the fly, the fly zippers. Arm loiterers, these warriors. They have wives and beasts to do all the work. All that moves is their horsehair fly whips zip over their shoulders. Zip, zip, go the frog-tongue whips of these casual tribal murderers and herders of women. Warriors, if you'll notice, with strips of leather hanging off their knife hilts, each commemorating an enemy killed. Raiding, or waiting to be raided. Fighting the rivals increase. This is the warrior's work. And night after night it continues, this eternal game of snatch the bacon. No killing, no honor. No honor, no woman. And until you kill and castrate an, or an enemy, steal his stock, rape his wife, and slaughter or enslave his family, until then you are a woman, 
without even the honor necessary to have a woman. And so wails and fires in the night, the Issa, the Itu, and Gala, Asimara and Arusis, the Agadines. We are mighty, the many. We are everything, and they, they are nothing. Spears in the night, zip, zip, zip. And this is what he's stepping out into. Right, right. So that's, you know, that's the, that's that reality. And I, um, it, it, that's what I wanted to try and convey. So. Well, I think you bring us there. <laughs> Don't go. Don't go, Ramal. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, definitely. And then, of course, to him, maybe he's thinking, well, this is this, but wait till I face mother. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't mean to make. Love. Well, I just, you know, he, I think that, um, I mean, this is also my character, but, but I think there was just this, this, this fugitive side of him that, I mean, you know the the sort of touching and sad side is that he goes away. He's been a poet. He's uh, wasted all kinds of money. He's never earned a living. He's never done anything like that. Well, here he's earning a living. He's earning a lot of money, and his hope is he's going to go back to France and he'll be a man of some means. He'll be able to come back with some <laughs> some respect to, to his, mother, his mother to show his mother and. That's just one of the saddest things in the world because I think every, I mean, that's such a, just an eternal story where somebody thinks they're going to, you know, change their destiny or change what a certain kind of love. parent, right, or change, change what a parent thinks of them oh, yes. and it won't, but, and yet we believe it and we, and you know, it's, I think it's, many of us are captive to that, that what, fantasy. What drives us, right. even if we don't know it. Right. I mean, I... Yep, I still wanted to please my father, and it wasn't going to work, you know. But <laughs> so, but you know, you try. And and you wrote that essay about uh, losing your father to Bruce, right? That was, um, yeah. He um, he he. Uh, you know, my mother died, as I mentioned, when I was when I was eleven, and. Uh, I, th I think after that, I mean, I, I probably inflate the experience, but I think I, I guess I had this fantasy that I sort of knew everything there was about death and was about very, it was, was very, yeah, it was very, uh, tough and inured to this and, and, uh, he dropped dead and it was, I was just as upset as I had ever been <laughs> with, with my mother. I mean, I would just suddenly be driving along in the car and I would just start burst into tears and have to pull off the beltway as if I was in a driving rainstorm. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it just sort of, it, it brought the whole thing back with, with my mother and my relationship with him. Um, and, uh, just the things we miss in life, how we miss each other, how we misinterpret each other, how we sort of fear each other. And, and that seems like how that you've also poured in to Rambo. Um, because who did he have? What did he lose? Right, right. I mean, uh, I, you know, I think with uh, with you know living with someone who who was who was so tyrannical, so kind of almost hysterical in a way, uh, it it sort of just drowns out his ability to have emotions <laughs> or normal emotions, and uh, it just you're you're going to rebel against that if you have any backbone at all 
and, uh, and boy, he did. <laughs> so. And and Bruce, how did you how did you choose to move us through time? Because the 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 novel doesn't go on a like one chronology. Because right. as we said, we we start. He's been dead ten years, and being right. his mom is digging him up, <laughs> and right. so. Um, how did you decide to structure did it come did the story come to you that way or how how did you decide to move through well, time well you know after my long long stupid period you know i mean i say that in all humility i i guess i you know that's there's a certain point when i figure it out but i don't um i don't plot things out i don't do like plot outlines or anything like that i i want to just I want it to happen in a in a very natural way because I I think then as a writer you're more surprised by it you're almost as surprised as a reader would be or you didn't plan to take this person there and suddenly oh my god well, you know you're there and you can't you can't run away from it and but so very but very crudely uh, I it was a we alternate between Rambo leaving Harar and going back home and all that all those sort of present circumstances and then a lot of look back through his life uh and uh but i just you know once i figured i don't know once i figured it out i was sort of able to do it in that in that way but i as i said i didn't really plot out an outline bruce thank you i would be silly if you had plotted out an outline for a book about rambo (laughs) right that would (laughs) there you go you're right he would be he would be spinning in the mahogany casket Too true, too true. <laughs> the yeah. things that I'm saying today, and then we're laughing, right? So I can't believe it. But um, I feel like Rambo, he he gives you that um, that opportunity to 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 be right or wrong in some, but to be. Oh yeah, and I th- I think just I mean that tremendous feeling that you have with his with his poems and his writing. So I I, I really did try to honor that. I guess in the sort of the the craziness of the book, so to speak. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank I really you. enjoyed it to you. Oh, well, this okay. is great. We'll talk again. Okay. This is just the first, Bruce. Let right? me know. Um, okay. So you've been listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Bruce Duffy, his book, Disaster Was My God, a novel of the outlaw life of Arthur Rambo. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Bruce Duffy. Until next time.
This is the end My only friend The end Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands The end No safety This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, April 11th, 2012 in Los Angeles. I'm Doreen Marina. Coming up, President Obama calls on Congress to pass a tax reform bill, but some say the measure doesn't go far enough. A Guantanamo hearing opens for a Saudi man accused of the 2000 USS Cole bombing. The CIA has admitted he was held at secret black sites and tortured. Now the government is seeking to keep his testimony from going public. And we'll go to Gaza, where families of civilians killed by Israeli strikes are marking the one-month anniversary of their deaths and speak to a family who lost two loved ones in Israeli strikes on a farm one month ago. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. A massive earthquake off the coast of Indonesia sparked fears today of a major tsunami. Widespread tsunami warnings and watches were issued in the Indian Ocean as far south as South Africa. Media reports indicate that coastal communities responded quickly and evacuated and that the monitoring system installed after the devastating 2004 tsunami in the region apparently functioned properly. Despite the 8.7 reading and an 8.3 magnitude aftershock, waves were only moderately larger than normal. The Pacific Tsunami Warning Center canceled its tsunami watch early this morning. Egypt's fractured